Welcome to WISO Weekend, WISO's weekly radio magazine. I'm Jerry Kenny. Coming up in the next half hour, we'll talk to journalist and author Susan Page, the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Page will be the keynote speaker at the Dayton Area League of Women Voters celebration of their 100th anniversary and the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We'll talk to her about that and the book she published last year about former First Lady Barbara Bush, whose grandfather lived in Dayton. Also in the program, WISO's Lila Goldstein talks with graphic designer and UD professor Misty Thomas-Trout about her artwork, which will be on display at several Dayton Metro Library branches. Up first... For several weeks now, we've been bringing you the best of Dayton Youth Radio. Our feature this week originally aired in 2016. It's from Hannah Williams, who attended Tecumseh High School in Medway, Ohio. Hannah tells us about her brother Wesley, who was killed in Afghanistan in 2012. Today I'm going to talk about my brother and the legacy he left behind. He is my hero and always has been from the time I was born. Wesley R. Williams was born on March 17, 1987, on St. Patrick's Day, at Fort Hood Darnell Army Hospital. He is son of Linda and Lars Williams and has three siblings. In order of oldest to youngest, they are Amber, Austin, and me, Hannah Williams. Wesley had a love of military from a young age. Of course, I wasn't alive when he was little because he's a lot older than me. However, I do know that since the time he had been little, he wanted to be a Green Beret in the Army. In high school, he was in junior ROTC and was on drill. While in ROTC, he met his high school sweetheart and later on wife, Krista. In 2005, he graduated and signed up to join the Army. He, sadly, scored a few points too low on the test and could not be a Green Beret, but he still pursued a career in military. In 2008, he married Krista. In 2011, their first daughter, Faith, was born. In 2012, they found out they were having their second daughter. But unfortunately, on December 10th of the same year, fate took Wesley from us at age 25. He was killed in action in Kandahar province, Afghanistan. For as young as he was when he died, he still had accomplished everything he wanted to in life. He set up a college fund for me and made sure that Krista and his kids were set up for life. Over time, I will never forget him because he was my brother, the same brother who gave me my beloved puppy when I was seven, and all the gifts he brought for me, mostly from Claire's. He bought me earrings and journals and figurines and just a lot of stuff. I will never let go of any of it because that's the last things he gave me. The day we were informed of his death was the most devastating day of my life. I remember what an amazing day I was having. Everything was perfect and nothing was going wrong. It was December, so the entire house was decorated in light of the holiday season. There were Christmas lights and decorations everywhere. The tree was up and everything just felt so right. I was 11 years old at the time and I was in my room on December 10th when I heard a knock at the front door. I had this thing where I would run down the front door and check and see who it was, except I was really loud so you can hear me coming from outside. Sometimes I would fall down the stairs so you could just hear me tumble. When I looked out the front door, I saw a man and a woman in military uniform. My heart froze. Everything seemed to freeze, and I just stood there for a second. If you're a military family, if you're part of a military family, and you see 
army personnel standing at your door. Everything just seems to stop. Your life freezes, and you know nothing's going to be the same. When my mom asked me who was at the front door, I said I didn't know, even though I did. And I ran back upstairs. My mom opened the door, and the earthquaking news was delivered. My brother was gone. Wesley may not be here on Earth, but I, as well as everyone else that he has touched in his time here, will never forget him. I will always remember his smile, how much he cared for all his family, and I will cherish every memory he gifted me with when he came home for the holidays. That story was called A Puzzle Missing a Piece by Tecumseh High School student Hannah Williams. Special thanks to Michelle Peters at Tecumseh. You can hear more stories from this series by visiting WYSO.org or by subscribing to our iTunes podcast. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Project Coordinator Basim Blunt. This story originally aired in 2016. Dayton Youth Radio is created at the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WYSO, as is Veterans Voices coming up next in our program. The Black Knights were a precision drill team within the JROTC program at Colonel White High School, now Thurgood Marshall High School in Dayton. The JROTC program and its drill team were started by Army veteran Odell Graves of Clayton. Today on Veterans Voices, retired English teacher Phyllis Allen asked Graves about his work with students. The whole idea was to take young people and help them to become better citizens. The only mission that Junior RTC has is a simple sentence to help young Americans become better citizens. But the funny thing for me, for Colonel White, Colonel White had a fantastic band. It was called it the, the Little Colonels. All right. And I said, this is phenomenal. We have a phenomenal band, and I'm going to create a fantastic cadet corps. And you did. We, we did. Uh, you did. We uh, we had all kind of contests, competitions, and uh, gun twirling, and all sorts of things. Um, these were the Black Knights. Is yes. that what the drill team was called? Right. Well, I came in '98, and yeah. they already were twirling away and and uh, being really professional about it. Well, I started in '83, okay. and the Black Knights did not become the Black Knights until 89. It took us six years to really train a group of young people to be able to do that. I guess I'm uh, I'm thinking just of how much they the kids were a part of the school that was really a school for the arts. But um, but a lot of what we did would not have been possible were it not for um, many of your leaders were cadets in other departments and other activities throughout the school. We, we didn't want to monopolize, but I wanted to get the point across that leadership was pervasive. Every aspect of every program required leadership. And the fact that you are still working now at Dayton Early College Academy, um, I thought, how many times have you retired and been pulled back in or just compelled? And how lucky these kids are, even if they have you for one-eighth of the amount that Colonel White and Thurgood Marshall had you for. I never heard you say no. And you told me why that was. Do you remember well, what you told me? Has a, a, I, I can attitude. Being in the military for as long as I was, I learned one thing. You've got to get involved. got to get involved. 
as a citizen of this country, we all need to be involved and be committed to support this country. And the Black Knights will appreciate having been mentioned by you in this because they truly are future leaders of this country. That was Army veteran Odell Graves and Phyllis Allen. Their conversation took place at WISO as part of StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WISO is presented by Right Pack Credit Union with additional support from CareSource. This story was edited by Jim Kale and Will Davis. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is WISO Weekend on WISO. Thanks for joining us. On display at the Dayton Metro Library are a series of maps of the city's neighborhoods. Each one starts with the same basic black and white print, but layered on top are colored fabrics and transparencies. They outline areas with high poverty rates and highlight pockets of food insecurity. Graphic designer and UD professor Misty Thomas-Strout created the maps using data from the Miami Valley Regional Planning Commission. WISO's Lila Goldstein spoke with the artist about the project. What inspired you to work on this project to combine these ideas about equity with maps and cartography? Yeah, I have a great love for maps. I I myself am geographically challenged. Um, I find it very difficult to read maps. They're extremely complex. Um, They change. I mean, even the neighborhood map that I designed likely will already be changing because maps are essentially extinct as soon as they're made because our landscape changes every hour of the day. So there's something really like kind of poetic about the way maps historically define where we live and what we're doing, but they can also be interpreted in a lot of different ways by the person viewing them. So for me, I just am really drawn to that beautiful nature of them and when they're literal or when they're poetic mapping, I'm just I'm kind of obsessed with it. So part of the project illustrates Dayton's income inequality, also racial segregation, and access to resources. Why did you choose to focus on these issues and kind of why now? Why are they important to look at in Dayton now? Yeah, I don't think that um, I chose the issues as much as they chose me because this is something that America's faced in general. A lot of cities face racial segregation, income inequalities. Um, It goes right back to redlining. There is a lot of injustice in how we've built our environment, our culture, our cities. Uh, And for me to bring that to light and also as someone who uh, lives in a neighborhood where I don't have the same access to great food, um, to good produce, and I have to drive further to get to that um, outside of Dayton, is a topic that needs to be talked about a lot. It needs to be no longer hushed. It needs to be remain transparent, um, and it's of great interest to me. And since this data is already available online, how does having a visual exhibit like serve its own purpose and having it in the library, what purpose does that serve in addition to just the data already being accessible. Yeah, so for me, exhibiting at a library is something I like to do more than galleries because I think it's more welcoming for the common person. Anyone feels welcome in the library. It doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, what you're doing, what you're wearing. Um, you can interact with the work. And having it accessible visually to touch, there's a palpability there. You get to spend time with it. To me, print matters. Having the information travel from library branch to library branch not only celebrates our new libraries, which 
which everything is free, brings the information into all communities, makes it more accessible, and then further just disseminates it. So everyone has a chance to view it. They can see where their neighborhood is, again, relate to it a little bit more. And that's another important note is relatability. Getting people to have civic pride, they need to feel like they can relate to the matter. And if I have enough visual information that moves them, inspires them, makes them feel like um, they understand, they've dealt with these issues, they've had the same experiences no matter what it is, I think that they uh, build a little more care and they want to get involved more. That was WISO's Lila Goldstein talking with graphic designer Misty Thomas-Trout. You can see the maps on display at the southeast branch of the Dayton Library, and the exhibit will tour other branches through June. See images of some of the works on our website at wyso.org. On March 7th, the Dayton Area League of Women Voters will host an event commemorating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, as well as the 100th anniversary of the League of Women Voters, established in 1920. This year, the League has selected journalist and author Susan Page as their keynote speaker. Page is the author of The Matriarch, Barbara Bush, and the Making of an American Dynasty. She is also the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today and appears as a political analyst on ABC's This Week. CBS Face the Nation, Fox News Sunday, and NBC's Meet the Press, among other programs. In this interview, Paige talks about her in-depth conversations with Barbara Bush, whose grandfather lived in Dayton, and her thoughts on her career as a journalist about to cover her 11th presidential election. Susan, thanks so much for speaking with us today on March 7th. You will be the keynote speaker at an event for the League. Tell us what you're going to speak to audiences there about. You know, I'm going to talk about my book about Barbara Bush, who loved the League of Women Voters, thought it was an important organization, and also had a family connection to Dayton. I don't know if people in Dayton are still aware of this, but her father grew up in Dayton. And she told me when I interviewed her for the book that one of her favorite childhood memories was her dad would take her on the train from New York, where they lived, to Dayton to visit her eccentric grandparents, and her grandfather, whose name was Scott Pierce, would take her on the bus in Dayton downtown wearing his bathroom slippers. That was one of her big childhood memories. What time frame are we talking here? Her uh, grandparents moved to Dayton in 1898 when her father was just a little boy and lived there the rest of their lives. And when were you able to talk to Barbara Bush in researching your book? I started doing this book in 2017. This was when Barbara Bush was 92 years old, and as it turned out, in the final months of her life. And in doing, I covered Barbara Bush in various presidential campaigns, uh, but I didn't know her really well. And when I signed the contract to do the book, I had no agreement with her that she would cooperate. Uh, and my reasoning was, if I asked for her cooperation and she said no, I'd be very discouraged. Maybe I'd chicken out. But if I ask her to cooperate before I signed a contract and she said, yes, she might think she had some control over what I wrote. So I took a leap of faith. I signed a contract. I wrote her a letter and said, could I interview you? And after about a week, she said, yes, I could interview her once. And at the end of the first interview, I asked if I could interview her again. And she said, yes. And at the end of the second, I asked again. And you can see where this is going. I interviewed her five times, five long interviews in her home in Houston, during the final six months of her life. And how did she appear during those interviews? 
she was a pistol. She hadn't dropped uh, a step mentally. Uh, she remembered everything. She still had things that delighted her, and she still had grudges she was nursing, including against Donald Trump and against Nancy Reagan, and she seemed delighted <laughs> to talk about those. Uh, she was she was a delight to interview and very candid. And, you know, one thing that she didn't like uh, about the book was she hated the title that I had because she didn't like the word matriarch, which she thought made her sound uh, very self-important. And she didn't like the word dynasty, which she thought also just conveyed the wrong tone of entitlement. And so in one interview, I said, well, you don't like my title. What would you make the title of this book? And she said, the fat lady sings again. <laughs> you know, she, uh, she told me so many great stories. She told me about her long feud with Nancy Reagan. Even though I had covered both the Reagan administration and the Bush administration, I had not been aware about how much they disliked one another. And she also told me about how much she didn't like Donald Trump, which you might expect given that Donald Trump defeated her son, Jeb, for the nomination uh, in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, she told me that, in fact, the, the, the first time I interviewed her, I said, are you still a Republican? And she said, yes, I'm still a Republican. The last time I interviewed her, I said, you know, six months ago you said you were still a Republican. Are you still a Republican? And she said, no, I don't think so. That's Which interesting. Is remarkable for someone who had been a face of the Republican Party for so many decades. That is. And so that feud goes way back, certainly with Nancy Reagan. Uh, did she give indications as to what was at issue there? Well, you know, she... She thought Nancy Reagan was pretty mean to her. And, of course, for eight years, Nancy Reagan was first lady and Barbara Bush was second lady. And Barbara Bush had to constantly defer to Nancy Reagan, who she found kind of mean. Mm. Uh, and finally, when the Bushes were out of the White House, this was right after they had moved back to Houston after the inauguration of Bill Clinton in 1993, Nancy Reagan called her with another outlandish explanation of something she had done that had hurt Barbara Bush's feelings. And Barbara Bush said to her, I'm tired of your explanations. Don't ever call me again. And the two women never had an extended conversation again. You mentioned that she didn't like the term dynasty in the title of your book. It's one way of, of describing certainly the family and the power that they amassed. But the Bush family was very family-centered weren't they? Oh, totally. She was completely devoted to her husband and to her children and to her grandchildren. And she didn't like the word dynasty when it seemed like a political term. Hmm. Although, of course, she was one of only two women in American history to be the wife of one president and the mother of another president. And to be the mother of two governors of two of our biggest states uh, and to be the grandmother of someone elected to statewide office in Texas, her grandson George P. Bush. So she was she did she was a leader of a of a political dynasty. But one way in which she liked thinking about those next generations of her children and especially of her grandchildren is not as a political dynasty, but as a dynasty of public service. And when you look at her grandchildren, Several of them have undertaken jobs that involve public service that is not that is not political. You know, her namesake, Barbara Bush, her granddaughter, who has the same name, Barbara Bush, um, helped create the Global Health Corps, which is a going concern that provides health care in the developing world. Another granddaughter, Lauren Bush Lauren, helped create a feeding program 
for hungry children. Uh, she has a grandson who was head of the largest boys club, girls club in the United States. She had another grandson who I discovered had served in Afghanistan uh, while his uncle was president in service that was never disclosed at the time. The family never talked about it, but Walker Bush served two tours of duty in Afghanistan. Was there anything that surprised you in those five interviews? Here's one of the extraordinary things about this set of interviews. At the first interview, she said, don't even ask to see my diaries. You can't see them. She'd been keeping these diaries in 1948, and she kept it. The last entry was made just about nine days before she died. So these diaries spanned her remarkable life. I took her at her word. If I had a diary, believe me, I would not let a reporter read them. Uh, but I asked to see parts of her diary that dealt with Reza Gorbachev, and she said she would think about that. And the very last time I saw her, although we didn't know that was the last interview I would have, we had another interview scheduled, but she passed away before uh, the sixth interview took place. I said, have you thought about whether I can see these parts of your diary? And she said, I've thought about it. I've decided you can see them. You can see them all all of her diaries, all these decades of diaries. And, and what were your thoughts? Um, her diaries have been given to her husband's presidential library with the provision that they cannot be read by anyone until 35 years after her life. So it will be another, what, 33 years before anyone else can read them. Wow. But I spent hours in the, uh, at the Bush uh, 41 library in College Station going through box after box after box of these remarkable documents. And, of course, by the time I was finishing the book, she had passed away. Uh, so I did go through with her chief of staff what I was using from the diaries. But, you know, it was pretty much a leap of faith on her part to let me see them. I'm wondering if you gleaned any information or insight about her based on her writing style in her personal diaries. You know, the thing that struck me most about her diary is the way in which the death of her daughter, Robin, when Robin was three years old and when Barbara Bush was 29 years old, was a thread through the rest of her life. It was really an event that shaped her attitude toward people. It shaped, gave her a tougher skin. It made her more empathetic to the way life can beat you up. She writes in her diary over and over again about, about Robin, about this is Robin's birthday or this is the day Robin died or uh, I wonder what Robin will look like in heaven. And that, I thought, was a remarkable insight, because Barbara Bush came across, I think, as, as kind of a tough broad, right, as someone who was kind of funny and plain-spoken. But the fact is, her diaries made it clear that she also had wounds that never healed, including the death of Robin. As you mentioned, you're covering your 11th presidential election. Let's put this in context on the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and the 100-year anniversary of the League of Women Voters. I'm just struck over and over again by what a young nation we are. You know, we've only had 44 presidents. I've interviewed nine of them. The fact that women have only had the, the right to vote for 100 years is also astounding to me in a way when you think about how far and how fast we've we've come. Now we have a presidential campaign in which there are multiple women running for the Democratic nomination. We had the first woman nominated for president last time around. Uh, it's, we have a woman who is Speaker of the House for the first time. So I, I, I guess I feel like we, we're, we're a nation that's still, in a way, figuring things out. We're a dynamic nation. 
we continue to change. Uh, sometimes that can be um, satisfying. Sometimes it can be terrifying. Uh, but that's the 100th anniversary of the League of Women Voters and of women winning the right to vote. It's a reminder to me of all that. You mentioned the Speaker of the House, and, and if we can give our listeners a little preview, you're working on another book about Nancy Pelosi. I am. I'm working on a biography of Nancy Pelosi that's coming out early next year. Uh, you know, she and Barbara Bush are different in many ways. Uh, you know, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat. One was the wife of a public official. The other has been the public official herself. But there are some similarities between the two of them. And one of the similarities between them is that I think for many years, each of them was underestimated. Uh, their impact and their abilities underestimated. And with both biographies, I've tried to bring that to light. Well, let me just ask, when you look back at the experiences you've had in covering presidential administrations and the people you've talked to over the years, how do you assess your own career? You know, never in my life did I think I would have the opportunities I've had um, as, a, as a journalist. I, I was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas, uh, in the Midwest, just like Ohio. And I had not spent a night outside the state of Kansas until I went away to college uh, and enrolled at Northwestern. And yet in the years since then, I've interviewed all these presidents. I've written a book. I've been able to see um, big historic events as they happen and try to convey them to people. So I guess in many ways, I just feel like the luckiest person on earth. Susan Page, thanks so much for your time today. And we look forward to your speaking at the League of Women Voters event on March 7th, honoring the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment and 100 years of the League of Women Voters. Jerry, thank you so much. This is Bill Felker with Poor Will's Almanac for the second week of early spring. It's the second week of the broody hen moon and the second week of the sun in Pisces. Now, it's possible that some listeners do not know about broody hens. And since this is the month of the broody hen moon, it may be helpful to discuss the subject here in the almanac. So anyway, what is a broody hen? Well, a broody person may be thoughtful and unhappy, moody and melancholy. But in chicken world, well, a broody hen is one that doesn't want to give up her eggs. She wants them to hatch. And that would seem reasonable if a rooster were about, and if the owner wanted chicks, then the broody hen could be a blessing. But most chicken owners, I am told, want to eat or sell their eggs, and the broody hen does not want to let them do such a thing. She may scream and squawk and try to bite when the owner attempts to take the eggs and the hen will not leave them, except maybe once a day or so to eat and drink and relieve herself. So, if you don't own chickens, this information may seem of little account. On the other hand, the end of February often brings on broody girl or broody boy syndrome, the last 
fierce gasp of the winter blues. And if you or someone you know developed this syndrome, what you can do is to treat the person like a broody hen. So what do you do? Well, first get him or her away from the nest, like on a vacation or to a movie. Second, place a bag of frozen vegetables underneath the hens or the person's bottom. That distracts them and makes them think the stuff is too cold to hatch. Well, it works for hens. It may just work for the broody person, too. This is Bill Felker with Poor Will's Almanac. I'll be back again next week with notes for the third week of early spring. In the meantime, if your hen or friend gets broody, you are totally ready. Bill Felker contributes to newspapers nationwide, including the Yellow Springs News. Bill resides in Yellow Springs. Poor Will's Almanac is also available as a podcast at WYSO.org. That's it for this edition of Why So Weekend on 91 at 3 WYSO, building a more informed community with independent news and storytelling. I'm Jerry Kenny. We'll be back next Sunday morning at 10. Now on Why So, it's Vic McCunis with the Book Nook. <laughs>